Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today I'm talking to Ruth Rogers, the New York-born, London living chef, whose River Cafe restaurant, which she co-founded with the late Rose Gray, has blazed a trail for Italian cooking ever since it opened on the Thames in 1987. I sat down with Ruth in the office above the restaurant one morning to talk about supporting women in business, her passion for clothing, and five objects that have given her inspiration in life. Hi Ruth. Hello. Welcome to our show and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. We're recording at your restaurant in West London, whereas normally we record at Five Carlos Place. Um, It's an amazing space. Has the interiors, it's it's beautifully done up and has it always been, because you've been here for 30 years now and has it always looked like this or has it evolved? Yeah, I always say that Rose and I started, you know, we started the River Cafe, we were two women with very little, if any, experience mm. of, of uh, restaurants. Rose had more than I did because she had actually helped out a friend in New York who was starting a restaurant, Nell Campbell. But um, so I always really like to say that Rose and I grew with the restaurant. The River Cafe grew as we grew. So we started very, very small. We started, R- Richard and his partners, Richard Rogers, my husband, bought these warehouses on this what we're overlooking right now, the beautiful Thames in Hammersmith. And it was kind of, it was quite, at that time, it felt really far away, you know, it was quite, and so we thought, well, what we would like to do is have a community, and part of a community would be to have somewhere to eat. So we started the River Cafe with a lot of restrictions, a lot of restrictions. We weren't allowed to be open um, in, at nighttime. It was only at lunchtime. We were only allowed to serve people who worked here. But um, the, I suppose one of the restrictions was space, as you say. It was a very small space. It had um, probably six tables, a small bar, and a teeny tiny kitchen that could just about fit one small fryer, a small grill, and an oven and a, four tops. And so we started that way. And then, you know, we more people came, more space became available. And in 1994, we made it bigger. And then in um, 1996, I think, no, no, 2000, that's right, 2000, we actually added a barn because more space became available and an entrance. And then in 2008, we had a fire. And I think the option then would have been to just paint the place white and, you know, clean it up. Or should we really think about how we could make it, you know, more beautiful, more exciting? And so we invested in ourselves after the fire we um you know we had the option of just painting it white and doing nothing but we used that as a way to as i say invest in ourselves to create something that would be and it it didn't change that much but we had more space and we made a completely open kitchen and we love the bright colors you know we have a bright pink um wood oven we have a yellow pass we have a blue carpet and those colors combined with the white walls and the slightly industrial space and the view out the windows these floor-to-ceiling windows um it lifts my spirits every time i come in 
if you opened another restaurant now, would you do a similar aesthetic or would you do, would you like to do something completely different? Well, I think, you know, one's aesthetic stays, you know, your aesthetic stays with you. So I wouldn't suddenly go into doing sort of chintz and florals or, you know, not that I have any problem with other people doing that. But I think that um, at one point we were going to open another restaurant in Mayfair. We worked for two years on a site that was very exciting just behind um, Claridge's and in that area. And um, it was in an old car park. And so we started designing it. And some things... You know, yes, I would always want an open kitchen. Yes, we would want to have a bar that, you know, you could see the workings of the restaurant. Um, yes, I need light. Yes, we need space. But, you know, I think, I don't know that I would clone the River Cafe. <laughs> so in this podcast, we speak about objects that um, the interviewee finds inspiring or um, have given their life meaning in some way. And I was wondering mm. what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, I think, and I think about... Uh, objects there there are if I start with uh, for instance it's not an object but the art that we have in our house and I was once just talking to people about it who were there and I said that you know every picture I have in our house and there aren't that many um, has a memory of why we bought it and there are really only two artists that are that we have one is Philip Gustin and the other is Cy Twombly and um, they, they were friends. They were people we knew. Philip Gustin I grew up with because he came. Uh, he lived in Woodstock, where my my parents grew up, lived. And um, and so there's a. I have. I suppose one of one one of them that mean uh, means a lot to me is the one that he gave to my mother on her birthday, which is a just. Uh, a, uh, she's she's a librarian, and um, I don't know if that's why he gave her a book, but he gave her one of his beautiful open books. It's a very small picture. And uh, when I think of that, it, you know, it just fills me with great joy to see this, this, um, this Gustin of the book, which is something that he returned to over and over again, the books and the clocks, and also that my mother. And, um, and it's, it's in the space where I am most of all. And it's, something that I always gravitate to to, to look at so, what was he yes. like oh he's great do you, do you like his work, do you know his work? Yeah. yeah of course he was a big man you know he was a big man and um, in every way you know physically large incredibly um, to us as children generous you know we had and um, I think he really liked our family he and Musa lived in um, his wife who's a poet lived not far away in Woodstock in a very kind of solitary way and I think you know my house our house my parents house had a lot of people a lot of uh, things going on and so your um, parents were quite involved in um, politics and yeah activism. Were, yeah just well as you know as good as good citizens I think they would say you know my mother was you know president of the PTA and my father was on the medical council and they both participated in democratic politics and anti- um, nuclear war and you know they're very they're, they're engaged in that way I think they're both children of immigrants who'd come here to the United States in uh, the early part of the century and so I think like all of them they've been educated in the United States there was a time when there was a really exciting um, potential that you could come from one thing and grow and um, through education you know they were both huge believers in education 
And so I think that's also why the Gustin book means something mm-hmm. to me. So Philip was, um, you know, he was, he was in some ways very damaged by the, the um, lack of success of his exhibition when he went from abstract expressionism to the work that we all love now, you know, and that was his, um, the clans, the, you know, the paintings that he was, the more realistic expressionist ones. Um, yeah, he was great. I think I read somewhere that Cy Twombly used to eat here. Well, in the cookbook, true? yeah, he yeah. came a few times, yeah. and um, I, I think I can't remember how I met him for the first time. Who I met him through, um, and he, again, was um, extremely generous and uh, this is a wonderful artist. We'd already bought one uh, Twombly when Richard. I think we bought it when he won the Lloyd's competition. And that's why a lot of these pictures that we have mean something. And so we already had him, and I was a huge fan. And then um, and then we met him. And then over the years, we've, we've had his, his works on paper. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he loved to eat, yeah. And I have a menu that's in the book, which says, um, I love lunch with Ruthie, and that beautiful scroll. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. How lovely. Um, and is that um, growing up with parents like that and on that scene, is that something that you feel like you've carried through and yeah. you've been vocal? I yourself? hope so. I mean, yeah. I think Richard, both Richard and myself and our children all feel that, you know, we are members of, mm. of society and we have to think about, um, you know, the unfairness of wealth, the the advantages we've all had. Mm. Um, I saw a letter Richard signed recently with other architects. On Brexit. Uh, on Brexit. Yeah. No, we're both huge Remainers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you look in this restaurant, if you look at the people who are working here, you know, every day we come in and it's, this restaurant is made better by people who've come from all uh, different countries. And I think London has been made better by people who've come from all different countries. And what about, was there another object that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, so I brought up this book, which is, this book is, is the River Cafe um, Diary. And the River Cafe, we change the menu every day, twice a day. So when I come in the morning, I come in at 8.30. Um, I don't know if you know the way the River Cafe works. But first of all, we change the menu twice a day. And we also, from the very first day we started, we had everybody was involved in some form of the process of the food. So you have the waiters will come in very soon after the chefs, and they will start prepping. You'll see them on a long line behind the bar talking about the party they went to at the city last night. But they're also grating some Parmesan cheese. They are peeling the garlic. They're uh, washing the spinach. They're... Um, they they they're grilling the peppers. They can do they they know how to salt take a salted anchovy and wash it. So they're doing all that. So then the chef comes in. The head chefs come in, and my job will be to write the menu, and that will be based on rather like you probably do at home, which is you look in your fridge, and you see what's there, or you went to the market yesterday and you see what you bought. And so if we were to look at you know this this um, this and so the the hub really of information is in this book and and um so when i come in the first thing i do is i open this book i say hello to everybody see who's there see the waiters and then we talk a bit about what happened last night and then i see that um that she's ordered so if i find a page a nice page she's ordered um 
so say so here she's, she's ordered um from the from our butcher they've ordered um pigeon they've ordered lamb they've ordered sirloin from the one fish supplier they've ordered dover sole turbot and crab and then from another one um turbot clams and squid and then we have the italian vegetables that arrive so there's artichokes there's fresh um uh, cannellini beans, there's carrots and cima di rape and punterelle and there's radicchio and um, that, so I look at that and I also see that we have langoustine coming in from Scotland and there are wild mushrooms coming in from another small supplier so that's kind of, then I have, don't have it here but I see the list of what's in the fridge, you know, before they did this ordering they would have seen what's there and then I look and see what's left over so we might have made a tomato sauce that is fine last night, so I might think, well, I should use make something with tomato sauce. Um, there might be already cooked beans, so I don't have to. They don't have to prep too many, and maybe we might have had a busy lunch. We might have a quiet lunch. So I looked down, and so she will in her head say, okay, there's squid. Uh, she'll recommend that on the starters I do squid, langoustine, carne crudo, gnocchi romana, and crab, and then there's beef. There's um, partridge, there's veal chops, those are the three meat, and then there's uh, Dover sole, monkfish, and turbot. So then that's what I do. Then I, we get all that together, and in your, your brain, your mind, you're thinking many things. You're thinking, what do I have to cook with? Who do I have to cook with? You know, look at my team. Are they very, you know, experienced, or do I have quite a new team on, or some of them younger? Um, what, what do I want to eat? Am I hungry? You know, what did I... What do I feel like cooking today? What do I, you know, I really think about taste. And what do I feel? Am I in the mood for something? Is it cold out? So I'd really like to have something like polenta. Or is it quite fresh? And so I might want to have, you know, a salad or, you know. So you just, that's how we do it. And it's, it's, um, it's not ideas. It's nothing, oh, I have a new idea today for something on the menu. It's much more just a progression of what mm. you do. And that idea of eating what's in season and what's available as opposed to um, doing it the other way around, where did that initially come from? Rose lived in Italy. She lived in Lucca for a year. And, um, you know, I fell in love with a man who was born, you know, four streets away from Brunelleschi's Dome in Florence. So our basis was in Italy. But I also lived in Paris um, when Richard was doing the Pompidou. And so I think it really was that idea that, you know, you live over the market. I mean, in the Marriott, I literally lived over the market. And in Italians, they, you know, you go, I would say they don't go to the market with a shopping list in their head. They see what's there. And so I think when Rose and I started this, we thought, well, this is the way we cook at home. Let's do it here. And so um, it was also a sense of sustainability. You know, do you want to put raspberries on a, you know, an airplane in uh, February from I don't know, New Zealand or South Africa or the Bahamas or something and put them in an airplane and then bring them here and then unpack them, pack them. You know, why don't we just wait? Till if it's cheaper, it's better. It's the, the quality of the sun and everything. So we decided it was quite hard and it still is challenging. Then it was really challenging. Now we have the Milan market. And so we have every day, you know, um, trucks from Milan coming with vegetables from Puglia and from... Sicily and from you know a variety it's still it's still challenging all our fish and meat are fished off the shores of Britain we, we don't have tuna we don't have swordfish we don't have anything that we can't get from here and all our meat is also sourced from here the only thing that really comes in by plane is the mozzarella and maples 
And were you always interested in food? I think so. I think I was always, I think I would say that, you know, my family around the table was much more about probably talk than really good food. But, you know, it was a very kind of talking thing. My mother cooked, you know, she always cooked. Uh, my father didn't cook. He would cook sometimes, but my mother did cook. Um, and we would have um, simple meals. You know, they both worked. So we'd come home and there would be simple food, but good food. And I think she did cook well because people always wanted to eat at our house. And then I think um, in my teens, I became really, really interested. In it. And then when I came to London and, you know. You moved to London, was, it was a sort of late 60s. Yeah, sort of 68. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, it was an, an amazing time. time. It was, it's funny because yeah. I was thinking about this and when I saw the, the date that you arrived, because we did this podcast with Norma Kamali. The oh, did you? Did you, did you know you, her? Yeah, yeah, of course. And she actually started out as a airline hostess that oh, was the first she? thing really? she did because she yeah. was so interested in traveling and obviously she was from new york but she described coming to london for the first time in the late 60s and this having this sense of seeing color yeah after yeah. this kind of gray draft yeah. this war um america and britain and suddenly yeah. there was this color that came through in the fashion and the music and was that yeah. something that you yeah had i did of? i was i mean i think by 69 you know i think i saw michael kane has done a fantastic documentary yeah did you see it yeah. uh, so good about about the early 60s you know and as you say you know rationing was over and the war was over and and suddenly there was mary quant cutting you know making fantastic short skirts and biba and fidel sassoon cutting hair and it was just a exciting time when I got here it was still going on but it was for me um, it was much more political because what was happening in 68 in the United States and the Vietnam War and in France with the 68 riots and so it was really intensely exciting to be in Europe and to have all that happening mm. Mm. what was it like I mean I'm jumping I'm did you always think you were going to work yeah yeah, work, did you work all the way So through? I worked, I came here as a student. I was only supposed to stay six months. And then I um, I was at Bennington College in Vermont in New York, in the United States. And um, I came over for six months. And then I was so excited to be here. And I'd gone to high school in Colorado and college in a small town in Vermont. So when I hit London, I was like, wow. And so... Um, I knew that I would only be allowed to stay if I went to school. So I went to the London College of Printing and I did graphic design for three years. And then um, I worked for Penguin Books in the art department with David Pelham, who was extraordinary kind of heroic designer who really changed book publishing and book design. And then Richard won the Pompidou Center. I'm just going quite fast here. He won the competition, you know, of all competitions to go to Paris. So for the first year, I didn't move with him because like all competitions, you always thought this will never happen. And then we went to Paris and um, I did move there. And then I worked in the office. I worked doing coloring drawings or helping with exhibitions. And But I did it in a kind of, I had my first baby there. And I think it was um, also a way of just being in Paris and cooking we, we cooked and cooked and cooked every we cooked and cooked and ate and ate i said if you look through the check stubs of our <laughs> when people wrote checks in those days yeah um they were all for restaurants yeah and so you I always worked you've mm. always were you a working mother the, the, all yeah I, yeah i did i you know i think I that's worked, also was quite unusual yeah, at the time yeah you know? i worked 
But I, you know, I was in Paris and I didn't really have a strong role in the office. But, and we traveled back to London every so 10 days to see our stepchildren, my stepchildren, which is children. So it was, and then the really, then, then it was the River Cafe and that, that was very, by that I had two children and my younger son was, I guess he was four when we opened the River Cafe. Wow. Yeah. What about your third object? Oh, okay, let's see, a third object. What did I say? I thought that, you know, Mexico is very, very uh, important to to me as a place that we go to, we turn to every year. Um, we go to, um, we started out in 1993, so that'd be about 25 years. And I think there's only one year we missed, a, we went to Australia. Um, but really every Christmas we go back. And I love the country, I love the food, I love the people. The colors. Do you know it? Do you know Mexico? It's I've never just been. so exciting. And Mexico City is incredibly dynamic, and um, you can be very quiet there. You can be out on the streets. You can go downtown to see the Diego Riveras, and you can see the political revolutionary museums, or else you can go to. For me, what I find incredibly moving are the pre Columbian sculptures. And I've always had, it's sort of what I gravitate towards is the art of the Latin American culture, you know, much more than the Eastern. For me, um, I the, loved India, but... The colors here yeah. are sort of reminiscent yeah, maybe, of those maybe colors. Yeah, maybe, maybe, for us both, yeah. And so um, we have a small collection of uh, pre-Columbian art in the house. This, this figure is one was actually given to me uh, by a friend in Mexico. One is not pre-Columbian, but it's from Peru. And then we've bought a few pieces that um, from beautiful gallery, and and they're not major. But when I see those, I am always reminded of the power of you know of a culture of the of um, respect for. Well, we think we know so much now, and then you look at the way they you know they created this beautiful, humble, and humanistic art. Mm. And so, so is there that. one piece in particular you'd choose? Yeah, there's a, there's a piece that I have, which is a, um, it actually comes from Peru, and I'm so I'm not I'm a bit muddied about <laughs> what it is, but it's of a figure, and I saw it in a friend's house, and in Lima, uh, Andres Armade Armando, I get this right, Armando Andrade, who's a great collector and friend, and I I, I just could not stop looking at it. It's of a figure of a man and he has his hands horizontally both open and a very, you know, they had very flat bodies and his two legs in a stance. It's probably about that high, it was about two feet, I mean, 18 inches high. And, um, and it's, it's brown and it has another lighter brown and colors and it just is like his arms open just says so much to me that this there's this figure because a lot of the sculpture of that time is quite tight you know it's mm. quite the, the figures but this one has his arms wide open and I sort of mm. say good morning to him every morning he's on the shelf <laughs> in our <laughs> living room <laughs> um and then what was it like when opening a restaurant with a woman so you went into business as two women in the late 80s and I was just wondering what that was like then. It must have, it must have come with challenges. And is it something you feel now? Um, do you feel a responsibility, or do you feel somehow representative of women in business? Uh, yeah, I hope all of the above. Yeah, you know, I think that when Rose and I started 
two women in 1987. You know, chefing was a very male world, although I have to say there were great women who had also mm. started be just before us. There was Alice Walters in, in Berkeley. There was Judy um, Rogers in San Francisco. Uh, there was Sally Clark here. Um, you know, now there's Angela Hartman. If I start naming you know, Yeah, and naming some of them names. Come, came up through and here. And then April Bloomfield yeah. came from here. There's... there's um, so when I first, I remember, I always tell the story that when I first put on a pair of, of um, chef's trousers, I said, these are so uncomfortable. And I called up the linen company and said, these are really uncomfortable. And she said, look, they're designed for men because 98% of the people who wear them are men. So just, you know, deal with it. You know, and I said, <laughs> okay. And um, I would be really excited to say that the other night, Sean, who's the head chef at the River Cafe, uh, said to me, um, we have fifty. We always have fifty percent women on the road. You know, we see the list of employees. I'm gonna say always. Sometimes we have more. Sometimes we have less. But if it goes down below, that's what you aim for. We do for, something. Yeah, right. at least. Yeah. And um, and she said, Ruthie, I did a shift the other night, uh, last night, and it was so busy. It was so great. And I looked around and I realized that it was just women. And she said she took. She told the chefs, you know, if Ruthie and Rose had ever imagined that, you know, thirty years later. With 200 covers, the restaurant would be all women, you know, that, and not by, you know, not saying we're going to be an all women restaurant or mm. we're going to be women only in the kitchen. But these are smart, determined, ambitious, curious, energetic women who are um, working and doing really well. Yeah. Mm. And this whole new wave of feminism that's been coming through in the last few years. Um, is that something you take an interest in? Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think that um, women, yeah, we're doing so well, yeah. you know, in so many ways. You know, I'm so excited by the fact that in Congress, you know, just yeah. now I'm American, the midterms, you know, so many women mm. are going to be mm. in Congress. It's very, very exciting. Democratic women, you know, mm. the Republicans didn't get very many women, mm. if any. But um, there's, there's an empowerment now, and I think that... Uh, I think, but we need to keep working. We need to keep, you know, on our toes and and looking out for any um, forms of misogyny or stopping women from doing things. I'm on the Berkeley Co. Um, women in Business Awards, and I really enjoy that too. You know, there's so many great women, great men, great women, great everything. You know, is there something that you feel women bring different to a restaurant as a chef? Or do you think that's... I'd like to say no. Yeah. You know, I think I'd like to say that every chef is different, mm. every person is different. You know, I could say somebody cooks like that because, you know, she's a woman and then there'll be another woman who doesn't cook like that. And there'll be a man who does cook like that. So you don't know what that, that is. So just going back to your chef's trousers, um, did you manage to find something? Is there something yeah, now? Now, is, it's amazing. Now, now they're designing them for women. Really? They're great yeah. trousers for yeah. women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they're great trousers, yeah. <laughs> Are you interested in fashion? Yeah, I love those. Yeah. yeah, I'm always interested. And in, uh, I find it you know, exciting to see what what is... I mean, do I believe, you know, fashion is many things. But, um, yeah, I love seeing... I love Are there any down. brands? I live or on, where do you shop well, we were just talking. I like I, I like Celine yeah. very much. Um, I like the Row very much. They were in here. The Olsen twins were here the other day. Oh, really? They're so cute. Okay. Very, very nice. Um, and um, you like that kind of I minimalist like shoes. sort of yeah, I think luxury, probably, luxury yeah, maybe minimalist style. kind yeah. of like stuff. But I like um, 
I like, uh, you know, there's this one from San Francisco, this shirt called James Purse. Do you know him? And they're kind of just amazing nice. Amazing t-shirts. Achieved, yeah, amazing yeah. t-shirts. And amazing. And one of the nice things is that I um, work every day in a uniform, you know, so I come in and I change my clothes. And then so when I go out at night, it's quite nice to, uh, to look nice. Mm. But I like jeans. I like sweaters. I like, I, I, well, I wear a lot of big sweaters, I think. Yeah. Mm. What about, what else? We've got, we're okay, going to pick five. Object. So I think so you've done three. Got, so the other thing I thought I might say is that um, very, very different is that I have uh, a very good friend of, uh, he became a friend, a friend of mine wrote to me and said, Ruthie, um, this is the last Star Wars, the one that J.J. Abrams did before the last one. A friend of mine is coming to London and um Actually, Johnny Ive, who's a designer for Apple, said this one of my best friends is going to be the um, he's the visual effects director. So, hang on, Johnny Ive said to you, Yeah, yeah, right. Roger Guyatt is coming to London, he's just like the best guy, and he's going to be um, the visual effects. Would you kind of look after him or bring him to the River Cafe? And that started a really nice friendship um, with Raj and all the people. At, on the Star Wars, you know, they just because they were filming at Pinewood, they um, they came here for lunch a lot, and um, I have to say that I was not a huge Star Wars <laughs> person at all in my experience, much to the, the despair of many of my friends. And they were so then I went out to the set um, a couple of times, and they were just great. And they came here, and it was a really, really nice relationship. And uh, both Roger and JJ are and um, the, their team, Dan, they said so when they left, when they finished the movie, they gave me a, what's it called again? <laughs> a lightsaber? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this drives them crazy. I always say to them, what's that thing you gave me? And they go, you know, my friends of mine come in and they go, Ruthie, how did you get that amazing lightsaber? Is that so a photo made, you have of it there? Yeah, that's it. So they made it for me. And it says, uh, Ruthie, Master Jedi, Ruthie, Rogers. Master Ruthie, Master Jedi, Rogers. Personal lightsaber for kitchen use only. Perfect for slicing, dicing, charcuterie, and fine cheeses, except camembert. Not to be used on any kitchen staff. We love you, and thank you from all your Star Wars team. So that's so. That's incredible. That's really nice. <laughs> Where do you keep that? So I have a shelf. We've done this in my house. I have the, we have these glass shelves, and so um, it's on that. It's on the glass shelf. Incredible. Yeah, so it's really nice. So that's very very important to me. And then um, I also have um, a photograph here of uh, another thing on our shelves. Our house is quite clean and simple and minimal. Not minimalist, but so we have. The paint, the pictures on the walls, and then we have um, the glass shelves where we put the objects that are important to us. We have a piece of the Berlin Wall that um, Richard was in Berlin very soon after that was given to him. Wow! And, so he picked yeah. it up personally. Yeah, he was, yeah. So, and we have, um, you know, a pottery that one of my, you know, that some of my children has made. Abe Rogers has a beautiful jug. We have a glass bowl from the 17th century that we bought in Paris. We have. Um, little drawings by you know friends or postcards and norman foster did this beautiful um collection of pencils for richard that he 
um, on each first seventieth birthday. So it's it's kind of that's kind of very personal shelves, and I have my Star Wars lightsaber, <laughs> and um, and then on the other shelf underneath the 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 pictures that we have the Twombies, we have Richard's mother's pots, and people always say to me, who t- who did those? Who did those? And they are very surprising because they are very they're very reminiscent of kind of um, the the almost like a Mirandi uh, painting. So she, um, they're all white and they're all very um, simple forms. And um, when would, when did she make these? So she did them. She always said she started doing pottery when Richard went to architecture school because she was so devastated to lose her son <laughs> to school in London, even though they lived in London. <laughs> it's very Italian yeah. parents. Um, and so... Um, so she started doing them then, but she continued, and then she kind of stopped when she was in her 80s, I suppose, and she found it quite difficult. But um, these pots, she always groups them together as well, so they're a bit like, you know, that she always called them her little cities that she did. So I think they they sort are of very, tool, very, like tubes. yeah, they're Is tubes or they're clay. Some pots. Are they made from clay? Yeah, they're made mm. from clay, and um, so um, you know. They sit very well the, um, on the on the shelf when you walk in and you see the gust and then you see the Twombies and then you see her pottery. And the fact that she was a great cook, you know, she was a really, um, a very, she taught me a lot. She taught Rose a lot. Rose is a friend of Rose, of Richard's before. Um, even I met him. And so they used to hang around Richard's mother's house and she would teach them. She's a very reticent cook. I would say the famous stories that, you know, on her, deathbed she turned to me and she said she was dying she said it wasn't her last words but she said now Ruthie she had amazing Italian skin amazing skin and she said to me now Ruthie I want you to put less herbs on your fish and more cream on your face (laughs) 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 those were her values in life so she's brilliant so those are Dada's parts how many have we got then I Uh, think we've got Several now. Are we okay? Yeah. Okay. So. The only other thing. Okay. Go if you have one. Other no, there's thing, one but... other thing. I suppose I would say yeah. is um, is a beautiful. Uh, what should I say? I might say my piano. Yeah, because um, Do you play? we have a piano. Well, I played when I was a child. I did that in American, you know, you know, music lessons, and then I stopped um, when I was probably a teenager, and then I really stopped. Um, and when Rose was very very ill. When I was in Tuscany that summer, I thought, I know, I'll take piano lessons. I'll go back to the piano just to have some quiet time or whatever it did. And I loved it. And I came back and um, took lessons. But it just made me, after she died, I think it just made me too sad. And so I stopped. And then this summer, I went back. And I knew I was going to be in Tuscany for three weeks. And so I thought, you know what, I think maybe I'll try the piano. And Tuscany for us is a, a, a time we have so many children and so many people staying. And so it's great because we don't have a country house. But I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do something just that would require me to do something by myself for myself? And so I started taking piano again. And um, you have a teacher, or are you teaching? So yourself? I had no, no. I had a teacher when I taught. I had a teacher in um, in Tuscany, and then um, when I came back, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a piano, and I'm going to have lessons and I had met him before and coincidentally he was giving lessons to my granddaughter Ruby and uh, May and so I walked in his name is Mark Schwartz and Mark Schwartz and Truber and he's 
kind of changed my life. And so Sean as well, who's um, the head chef here, we're both take, I gave her a present of piano lessons for her birthday. And so we're both having lessons from Mark. We're both obsessed. We're both, I mean, she's at very high level. I'm just kind of learning a Mozart piece. But I find that having the piano, again, I kind of even just play for five minutes or I have lessons, having lessons. It's just so, I think that's the whole thing about having lessons when you're older. You're so much happier to have them. When yeah. you're a kid and you have to have practice or study, it's so annoying. And I find this is the greatest luxury I can have, is to have an hour with Mark, learning you know, what Mozart was trying to say and how he was communicating it through his music and um, how when you play you have to listen for the space between the notes and how you have to take your time or it was, it, so it's been really nice I definitely put my piano as one of the objects I enjoy that's lovely um well thank you so much for Are talking okay? to us yeah yes, no, okay. that was wonderful thank All you right. it's been a pleasure that was an episode of the collector's house a matches fashion podcast you can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.